The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. Well, it's great to be here with you guys this morning, and it's been a little while. Uh, I think the last time I came to speak was, uh, was maybe two years ago, something like that, when you guys were uh, at Redeemer. So it's good to be here with you and to see what God's doing um, and just celebrate his work. Uh, and a lot of you I haven't had a chance to meet, and that's um, a sign of the life that the Lord is uh, creating here and extending here. So um, it's just very encouraging for us to be here with you guys this morning. Um, can I move this, or do I need to stay where I am? Can I? Uh, yeah, good. I want to be a little closer to you guys, uh, and I want to be able to see everybody. Except for, not my wife's behind the pole, but... Um, yeah, yep. We have the same issue in our church. The front row, there's like nobody who sits there. And I thought, well, why don't we get rid of that, that row, but then it'll be the next row, and they'll just keep on moving back. So you could have an em- every church has an empty front row. But, um, so we are, uh, you guys are going through Corinthians, and I have the, the challenging task uh, and the privilege of preaching from chapter 5. This is a fantastic book. Uh, because it's written for a church in a culture that's actually increasingly like our culture. And we face many of the same issues. And, and so um, I'm finding personally uh, in our church, I think, and you guys are finding just that this is increasingly valuable to us to understand what does it look like to walk out the gospel, to live in light of the gospel as a local church. So we're going to go into chapter 5 and, um, and look there and learn from chapter 5. Um, the title of the message is Sincere and True. Let's pray and ask God to speak to us, because that's the most important thing that can happen through all this, is that we hear from God himself through his uh, living word. So, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this chapter. And thank you for, in your providence, how this fits uh, in this church and really any church, Lord. You are uh, good to us to bring us your word and bring us your truth. And Lord, I thank you that I get to serve you. It's a privilege, but Lord, how I need you and how we need you, we want to hear from you, God. And Lord, I don't want to just do a good job of explaining the the truths that are here. I want, by your grace, that we would hear from you and encounter you and who you are and what you call us to. So I pray as a result of your word going forth that there'd be fresh faith and obedience and anticipation of your kingdom working in and through us. And, and all this, Lord, be glorified because you're worthy and we love you. And pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to read from uh, chapter 5, read the whole chapter. So follow along if you have your Bible. I think we're going to can project it here as well, but better to have it right in front of your eyes if, you're, if you have a Bible in your hand. So it says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. 
Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexual immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. God's word from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to dig into this chapter. We're going to learn the truth that we have here. We're going to kind of divvy it up as well and try to understand what's being said. Um, the core truth, just to say it up front, is that God calls us to, to a sincere and true new life in Christ. Therefore, we must be careful to preserve the integrity of our local church. So God calls us to a sincere and true new life in Christ. Therefore, we must be careful to preserve the integrity of the local church. So what I want to do is to, I want to talk about the what, uh, then the why, and then the how that we see in this, this chapter. So first, the what of corporate integrity, because that's really what this is after, is corporate integrity, church integrity, the what of that. So Paul is walking with the Corinthians uh, over time, writing them multiple letters, and you've been seeing here uh, how is he addressing this church, how he keeps on bringing them back to gospel truth, bringing them back to Christ. Whatever their issues might be, there's all sorts of issues that they're dealing with, all sorts of weakness, all sorts of error, all sorts of sin. And he again and again brings them back to Christ in an amazingly gracious way, but also a, a firm uh, and, and persistent way to bring them to this. And so now in chapter 5, there's this issue of lack of integrity and in how they're treating one of their own. Um, and the, one of their own, one of the members of the church, is engaging in sexual immorality. Um, and it's of a type that even in their culture, their broader culture, uh, it's a shock, shocking thing that's going on. Um, there's a man who's hooked up with his father's wife. Really, he, it looks like it's his stepmother. And she's probably not a follower of Jesus because she's never addressed here. The man is, but she's not. And, and it's, it's a, a shocking thing that's going on. And Paul says, even among the, the pagans or the Gentiles, the nations is another way to translate that word, word even among these people, what's going on is, is, is shocking. Um, and, and you can look up in the history of their time, there's commentary in, in, right in line with that. Cicero, the, the great Roman order and statesman, uh, talks about this particular issue of, of someone being with their, their, their stepmother. Uh, and how shocking it is. And the Old Testament itself makes it very clear uh, under the Old Covenant, this sort of behavior was not permitted. As a matter of fact, in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 11, it says, if a man lies with his father's wife, he has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. So it's behavior that, that is shocking. Um, 
and out of place, but it's important to understand that Paul isn't so much upset about the behavior, though that certainly is very concerning, and he's certainly concerned for this man. He's more concerned for how they're treating the person and the behavior. He's more concerned the fact that, that it's going on and they're doing nothing about it, that they uh, are, are missing the point that uh, not only are they doing nothing about it, but they're actually puffed up or arrogant about it. They actually think it's somehow a good thing. They're missing uh, the point. They're missing some key truths. And, and you're seeing already going through Corinthians that this is a, an ongoing issue. The Corinthians um, are proud of what they know. Um, they're proud of, of who they know. Uh, and they're not really uh, proud, as they should be, about Jesus, Christ crucified and risen and what that means, and, and, the, and they're not seeking to live their lives out in love in light of that. So they're, they're, their orientation is off. They're intellectually and spiritually proud, and as a result, they're very foolish, and they're getting things seriously wrong because of this orientation around what they know and who they know rather than Christ crucified and the life of love that follows. And so you'll, you'll see as you go through, this is a, an ongoing problem. They just keep missing things because they're missing the centrality, and the, and the wisdom that's in Jesus. So you, you've seen already in chapter 1, Paul says, and uh, speaking of this truth, he says, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. And they're boasting in their knowledge. They're boasting in, in their theology and what they know and who they know. It looks like there's this thread of kind of spiritual pride around liberty in the book of Corinthians, in the church in Corinth, that they've, they've latched on to this idea that they're free in Jesus. And it's a true uh, fact that in Jesus, your sins are forgiven. If you put your faith in him, you're, you're forgiven, you're free, you're not under the law in that sense that the penalty, the right penalty has been paid. So you're free. And they seem to get that, but then they kind of, they get focused on that idea, and they lose the, the reality of Christ and what comes with Christ. And so Paul, uh, later in chapter 6, is going to actually quote what they're saying about this and then correct it. So in chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, he, he says, quote, all things are lawful for me. And this is a quote uh, directly from them. And then he says, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me. And then he corrects them, but I will not be dominated by anything. And then, quote, from their culture, food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food. And then Paul says, and God will destroy both, one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. So they're, they're celebrating these things. All things are lawful for me. I'm free. I can do what I want because I'm forgiven. There's no penalty. I don't live under the law that way. And they're celebrating that, and yet they're missing that's really not about your liberty. It's about your life in Jesus, which is indeed a life of liberty, but also so much more. So they're missing this point because of, of their pride. And Paul is concerned about that this situation is going on in the church where this man is, is living a grossly immoral life, and they're proud about it, that perhaps they're thinking this is a celebration of our liberty. We're free. He's forgiven for what he's doing, so we're just going to let him do it. And this is the scandal that Paul's addressing, that they don't see the importance of, of living in Christ in a way that they're pursuing um, holiness as a people. They're pursuing Christ-likeness. 
The biggest problem is that they're not doing anything about it. For those of us who live in New England, we have a, a, a sad and living example of this. And, um, having grown up in the Boston area, and many of you as well have experienced just the sadness of what went on with the, the scandal in the Roman Catholic Church and the Boston Archdiocese. It certainly was scandalous that there was the sort of abuse that went on. It was terrible. But in many ways, the scandal was about the fact that they didn't do anything about it, that they didn't do all that they should have done to, to discipline themselves. And for many people, many of our neighbors and friends, uh, the Roman Catholic Church represents the, the very church of Jesus. And so that whole scandal for them uh, was about really how they think about Jesus and his church. And we have many friends and neighbors and relatives who have given up on Jesus and, and even the church as a result of that scandal. And, and it's a picture, picture of what Paul's talking about. The church of Jesus Christ should represent Jesus, should represent Jesus in, in many ways and keeping him central and by his grace pursuing a life of Christ-likeness. And we've, we've lived through that and seen this, this terrible example. And, and it should make what Paul's saying all the more poignant for us as we think about this, this call. Paul says that instead of being arrogant, they ought to mourn. In verse 2, ought you not rather to mourn? That they're to be heartbroken. They're to, to be saddened and humbled and sobered by this situation in their church. They should mourn, they should grieve, they should want to see something change. And, and, and we need to see in here that what Paul is getting at is that the church must act when there's such things going on in the church. Now, it's painful. It's a hard thing. It's difficult. Um, this was a, a brother in the church. We don't know all the details. Some commentators say that he perhaps was an important person in the community, and, and that's why they were afraid to, to address it. They didn't want to step on his toes or others' toes. But, but Paul's saying, you must act. You must mourn. You must do something here. You can't just simply let it go. We must act. The church must act when there's these sorts of things for the sake of the church, for the sake of the person, for the sake of the glory of Jesus in and through his church, for the sake of the mission of Jesus, of reaching people and showing them new life in Christ, for the sake of the pure joy of salvation. It's interesting to note in Acts chapter 5, there's a situation uh, of church integrity that goes on. There's this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, and they pledge a certain amount of money to give to the church. And this is in the context of, of powerful miracles going on, the powerful presence of God. And, and in their mind, somehow they, they don't see how foolish it is to do what they do. They pledge all this money, and, and then they embezzle their own pledge, basically, and try to pull one off on the church. And God loves the church enough to confront Ananias and Sapphira and bring discipline. You can read about the story in chapter 5. But it's interesting to note that as a result of that discipline, the church actually is better off in the long run. It says in chapter 5, 11 through 14, And great fear came upon the whole church, and upon all who heard of these things. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. Isn't that interesting? And then it says, And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, 
multitudes of both men and women. There's good fruit when there's integrity in the church, when a church is disciplined. Sadly, it's a rarity in churches. Not many churches practice this sort of thing. Not many churches practice what we call church discipline. And really, church discipline is really about church integrity. That's why uh, I'm using that, those words. It's about the church representing Jesus and keeping Jesus at the center. And sadly, many churches don't practice this. I don't know why. It could be a lack of focus on the, on the gospel of Jesus, keeping the gospel central and, and the impact of that, and, and therefore uh, valuing the new life in Christ maybe misunderstanding the love of God or the fear of man, maybe a lack of regard for the holiness of God, maybe just not understanding what church is about and how God's word is supposed to function authoritatively and how we do things. Whatever the justification is, what we see here clearly is that the church must do something about such lacks of integrity. The church must discipline itself And only an unhealthy church forgets this and loses its way. So that's the what, this idea of church discipline, of church integrity, and it it applying in a situation where there's gross immorality. Let's uh, talk a little bit about the why, and we see the why here. Um, in, In our Bibles, we have paragraphs, and you can, as you look through, you see the what in the beginning, the first couple verses, and then you see the why, verses six through eight, and then the the hows and the particulars are in both verses three through five and nine through 13. So we're gonna look at the why in verses six through eight. Paul's explaining the motivation here, and and he uses a metaphor of leaven here, and he talks about this old leaven uh, representing the ways of the world, the ways of sin, the ways of living contrary to God's ways. Um, the leaven represents sin, and sin is basically corruption of God in his ways, his truth, his goodness, his glory. It's a corruption of his design. Um, God, God didn't make the rules he has and, and, the, and the things he calls us to just because he likes to make rules. Um, all the things he calls us to are good things. They're all true things, and ultimately, in all that, they're glorious things. They're true, they're good, they're glorious. Um, He's not petty, he's not just a rule maker. He's glorious and good, and he wants us to know him and walk in his ways. Um, That's that's so important to get, to understand that that all of his commands, his law is is good. It's true, good, and glorious. And, And when there's sin, it's a corruption of those things. So it's untrue, it's not good, and it's twisted glory. And so this leaven is, is the metaphor Paul is using for all this stuff, sin, and, and what's going on, and, and the fact that it doesn't fit. It's not appropriate among God's people. And, and he uses a metaphor here. Uh, he talks about dough and leaven. So leaven would be the yeast that you put in dough. And dough, of course, is bread, flour, and water, and Sugar and what else? What are, what's the other stuff in dough? I don't know. Yeast is the other stuff we add, yeah. My wife's family runs a bread factory, so that's why, I'm, that's why I'm looking over there. And I should know what the recipe for dough is. But anyhow, we've got dough and we've got yeast. And Paul's using this metaphor that speaks of these things. And he's, he's pointing here to the fact that they are a new lump of dough. Uh, it, it says in verse 7, Cleanse out the old leaven. Okay, that's a metaphor for sin and these behaviors that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. 
that you may be this new lump of dough. And so it's a metaphor and it's a picture of us and, and we are a new lump of dough. We are new creations is what he's saying. The, the people of God and local churches are new creations, these brand new creations in Jesus. And you've been rescued by Jesus from your sin and the ways of the world to belong to him and to be new creations, to live in his good ways, his true and good and glorious ways. And, and to do that as you love one another and do that as you love the city and those around you and as you shine for Jesus and, and all that to bring God glory because you are imaging God. You're actually fulfilling the original mandate given to mankind to image God throughout the earth. And we, as a local church, among many, are, are called to be those that reflect who he is. And so our obedience and our new life in him is, is about doing just that, to, to be a people of integrity who, by the power of, of God and the grace of Christ alone, now reflect his image to the world. And so you're this new lump of dough. You're this new creation in Jesus. And it is what you are, actually. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... So if you are in Christ, if you've turned away from your old self and in sin and said, I want Jesus, I want to live in Jesus. So if anyone is in Christ through faith, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's the reality for the church and for you, brothers and sisters. You are a new creation. You really are a new creation. You have a new nature inside of you. It's amazing. It's a new nature by the power of the Holy Spirit inside of you. You are a different person the day that you believe in Jesus. You are a different person, and the Holy Spirit is in you. God, the eternal God, the infinitely glorious God, now lives in you. He's given you a new nature, and he's written his law on your heart. There's a new desire to follow after him. And that will only have its way over time more and more to the point where when you go to be with him, there'll be no more sin. You'll look like Jesus, your own particular version of Christ. You will image him perfectly in the new creation forever and ever. Uh, so we are new creations, and that, that new life is, is eternal life in us. We're, we're a new sort of people on the earth for the glory of God. So you really are unleavened, is what Paul is saying. You really are a, a new lump of dough. You're not the old stuff. You're not the old version of dough with the old yeast and, and so forth. You're a new creation. You're a new people. And this isn't wishful thinking. It's not fiction. It's as true as the very resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because when Jesus rose from the grave, he rose victorious over sin and death and brings us into new life. And when we are joined with him through faith, we experience that new life. So just as he rose from the dead, we live again in him as new creations. That's the context here. That's why their behavior and how they're dealing with this man is, doesn't make sense. It's a contradiction it's a contradiction to permit blatantly sinful behavior in their midst. It's inconsistent to allow gross unrepentance in the church. Now, don't get me wrong here. We still wrestle with sin. We have this new nature in us. The Holy Spirit is in there. The law of God is on our heart. It's wonderful. But we still have the old man that hangs around. We still have abiding sin. We still struggle. We still wrestle with sin. We still fall at times wrestle with sin even throughout the day. But there's a difference in us because now the Spirit of God is in us, giving us a longing for righteousness. We are in Jesus, and Jesus has already died for our sins, paid for those very sins that we wrestle with, whether it's today or 
10 weeks from now, those sins are paid for and we are clean in him. So we have this new life that, that, that overcomes the sin that we might struggle with. And, and we're not to be defined by those sins. They're no longer to define us. We're free. We're forgiven. We live in him. And so there's no reason to let that sin, that old way, define us. He says, Christ, the Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Um, and, and so he's using images from the Old Testament, things that went on in the Old Testament that really were looking forward to Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment. The Passover lamb uh, came from when they were coming out of Egypt. God was rescuing them from Egypt. They were living under oppression as slaves in Egypt. And, and God, in his love for his people and the desire for the glory of his, his name to be known among the nations, rescued them from Egypt. And in the process of doing that, he brought punishment, really, on the false gods of, of Egypt and, and the, the culture of Egypt that was uh, refusing to let his people go. And in the process, the angel of death came and, and took the life of all the firstborn in Egypt except for those who had the blood of a lamb on their doorposts. He passed over those houses. And so they didn't experience death. They were spared. It was through the blood of the lamb. And it says here that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. The reality is that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of that picture from the Old Testament. He is the one who came and he shed his blood on the cross to pay for our sins, and it's through his blood that the angel of death passes over us. We don't experience spiritual death because of the blood of Jesus. And Paul is reminding them of this, that they live in him, they've been freed from spiritual death, and, and they are this new batch of dough. And he's, he's, again, using another Passover metaphor because when they celebrated the Passover, they were to get rid of all the leaven in their houses. Um, so when the, each year they would celebrate around Easter time, um, Passover, they were to get rid of all the leaven. And, and there were two reasons for that. One is the original Passover. They, when God did all this, everything happened so quickly that they were uh, basically asked to leave and, and given gifts from the Egyptians, and they had to get out quickly. They didn't have time to let the, the dough that they were making rise. And so they, they, it was unleavened bread, and they had to go. And, and then there's the other picture here that it, in, in their history and in what God did and what Paul's saying, the leaven also represents sin. So getting rid of the leaven is a symbol of holiness. Leaven would be a symbol of sin, and getting rid of the leaven is a symbol of holiness. Leaven is just simply yeast. Yeast is the little uh, stuff that you, it's living, um, actually, Fungi is what it is that you put in the bread. It sounds kind of gross, but it makes the bread taste good, right? You put it in the bread, and it, and it digests the sugar in the water and creates CO2, carbon dioxide, and then that fluffs the bread up. That's what goes on in, with yeast. And part of the, the point in this is that it only takes a little bit of yeast in a lot of dough for it to react. And, and Paul talks about that, the fact that, that it, it only takes a little bit of leaven to leaven the whole loaf. And the, and the metaphor is of sin. It only takes a little bit of sin for the church to kind of be lax on, on sin just a little bit for it to have an effect on the whole lump of dough. And Paul's saying, guys, this isn't who you are. You're, you're a lump of dough. That's a new lump of dough. You're new creations. So get rid of the leaven. 
Be serious about who you are. Understand it's a glorious and good thing that Christ, the Passover lamb, has been sacrificed, and now you're to celebrate. You're to live this new life in Jesus, enjoying your forgiveness, enjoying the transforming power of the Holy Spirit in your lives, and you're to cleanse out the old leaven because you really are unleavened. It's who you are. It's interesting to get that, too, and, and important to get that here. Uh, Paul is, is saying to them, guys, this isn't who you are. Boy, it's so important to understand that. We, we, we look at commands in Scripture, and sometimes we, we mishear them. The commands in Scripture always flow out of who we are in God. God never commands before first giving grace. And from the very beginning, Adam is created. Adam and Eve are in the garden. They're blessed. And in that context of grace and relationship with God, he says, now obey me. And again and again, we see that through Scripture. And here as well, Paul is reminding them of who they already are in Jesus. They already are this new lump. They already are unleavened. They are already those who are celebrating the Passover in Jesus. It's who they are. They don't have to work to become new creations. They already are new creations. They don't have to work to become the people of God because they already are in Jesus. All that we are as believers, all that we will be as believers, is grounded on what Christ has already done. And so we walk out the integrity of what he's done, that he's paid for our sins, he's captured our hearts, he's joined us as one with him, we're these new creations, and we're only going to become more and more like him, eventually without sin, in glory forever. It's already who we are. It's all done by Jesus, and it comes through simple faith. That's the incredible good news. It's all through simple faith. That's the good news of Christianity. Jesus has done all this. He lived the, the righteous life, the good life, the life of love for God and for others that we all ought to have lived. He lived the life that we should have lived. And then he took that righteous life, that glorious good life, and he offered it up on the cross to be that Passover lamb, to shed his own blood, to pay for your sins. So he lived the life that you should have lived, and then he died the death that you and I should have died because he bore the wrath of God, the holy justice of God, of a good God who must deal with sin. He bore that on the cross in our place. He had done nothing wrong. He didn't have to do that. He didn't have any of his own sins to pay for. He only had his righteous life to, to offer to the Lord, and, and really in his righteous life to, to earn the favor of God. But his righteous life included his love to the point of going to the cross dying for our sins, dying to fulfill the Father's plan. And so there's this glorious exchange we have in Christ. His righteous life exchanged for our sin, our rebellion against God. He, he takes on us, takes on himself our sin, and we receive his righteousness credited to us. And then he rose again on the third day, victorious over sin and death. And, and now as we turn away from our old self and say, I don't want that anymore. I want Jesus. We are included in him. All of our sins have been paid for and put away, and we are credited with his righteousness. And now we are treated as if we had lived the righteous life Christ lived. We are treated as sons and daughters of this glorious family with God as our father, Christ as our elder brother. It's an amazing truth. 
This amazing exchange that we have, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the good news of the Passover lamb. And we live in, in this, in this reality, and, and it brings with it new life and forgiveness. And, and, it, and it defines us in a different way than we used to be. We're this new lump of dough. We're this new creation. And the good news of Christ needs to function at the center of all these things. That's what Paul's getting at here and reminding us of the Passover lamb and our new nature. David Brainerd, um, who spent his short adult life as a missionary to uh, Native Americans in the uh, northern Delaware area, uh, Delaware, New Jersey area, back in the 1700s, wrote this in his diary related to what I'm talking about. He says, I never got away from Jesus and him crucified. And I found that when my people were gripped by the, this great evangelical doctrine of Christ and him crucified, I had no need to give them instructions about morality. I found that one followed as sure and inevitable fruit of the other. I find my Indians begin to put on the garments of holiness and their common life begins to be sanctified even in small matters when they are possessed by the doctrine of Christ and him crucified. Pastor John MacArthur says something similar. One of the greatest protections from sin is that, we, that we have as Christians is simply focusing on our Lord and on the sacrifice he made for us. It is impossible to be occupied with this truth and with sin at the same time. That's what Paul's doing here in this chapter. He's saying, guys, let's come back to this truth that the Passover lamb has been sacrificed. You live in him now. You're forgiven. You belong to him. The old leaven's put away. You're this new lump of dough. So focus on that. And when you get that, you'll get this other stuff. You'll get why we can't allow this, this brother to continue in what he's doing. We have to live out in light of who we are in Christ. We need to help him live this out as well. And that's the why. Because of these truths, we must pursue the integrity of the church for the sake of the festival, for the sake of the celebration, for the sake of being what we really are in Christ. So we've looked at the what, looked at the why, now let's dig in um, in the how. Look into the, some of the details we find in verses 3 through 5 and 9 through 13. So Paul is, is bringing this truth to them for certain situations, because I imagine as you're listening, you might be thinking, have I done anything this past week that maybe needs to be addressed? Maybe there needs to be a you know, church discipline for me, for my sins and my struggles this week. When, where do I fit in this, and, and do I have to undergo church discipline? And, and I would say, yes. All of us live under discipline. We all live under the discipline that God brings through his church for our good. It's, a, it's, a, it's normal Christianity to be disciplined by a father who loves us, and he wants us to live in light of who we are in Christ. He wants us to depend on him for life and power and to live out a life of increasing holiness by his grace and his power. So he's ever active in our lives to, to bring situations and to bring brothers and sisters who, who know us and love us alongside to help us keep our eyes on Jesus and turn away from the world. 
And so Hebrews 12 says, For they, speaking of earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So this is normal Christianity for for all of us. that's why John in 1 John can say, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Chapter 1, verse 8. And the truth is not in us. And then this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What wonderful truth to visit each day. And then James, something similar in chapter 5, verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So it's normal Christianity to be under that sort of discipline, just regular part of who we are. God's good to us. He wants us to grow in Christlikeness, so he's ever addressing us. But Paul is not addressing that category of Christianity here, just so you know. That's normal Christianity, so don't be surprised. Don't be shocked that you struggle and you need help. We all do, all the time. But this is a different category here because what's going on here is, is, that, is that this man has refused this sort of help. He's refused the, the normal experience of, of having his sin exposed and running back to Jesus or having his brothers or sisters say, hey, how are you doing in that area? Hey, I'm struggling. Can you pray for me? Get help and, and, and resisting that sin. He's refused that. And it's probably gone on for some time. And he said, instead, I want this. I want, I want this immorality more than Jesus. And so he's kicked things up into a, a different category. Now, Matthew 18 speaks about this reality. It helps us understand that there's a category that, that where, where things kind of kick in in line with what we're seeing in this chapter. So Matthew 18, verse 15, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. So this is a sort of situation where there's some sort of obvious and blatant sin in your brother or sister, and so you seek to help him. And 99% of the time, your brother and sister's like, let me think about that. Comes back, thanks so much, please pray for me, or right away, hey, I'm struggling. Many times it's just the course of normal Christian life that, that this step goes on. But verse 16, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So this last category is what Paul's talking about here. That this is after repeated attempts, this man is resolute in his sin. So this is a different category that's important to understand. Now, again, we all experience the earlier categories as normal Christianity, but this guy has refused that, and he has, he has participated in gross immorality, the sort of immorality that is life-defining and scandalous. It not only defines his life, but it's going to define the church, and that's part of Paul's concern, is that if you don't do anything, he's not only defining his life this way, but he's defining you guys this way, and then the very name of Jesus as well. And so it has to be addressed. So he says in verse 11, um, he's, he's helping them understand that, guys, this doesn't apply to non-believers, by the way, because non-believers don't yet know Jesus. They haven't yet come into this new relationship. And so we shouldn't expect them to necessarily have this sort of level of integrity. So we're to be ambassadors to them. We're to love them. We're to welcome them in. But when someone says they're a brother or sister, that I belong to Jesus, and yet they're living in this sort of gross, blatant, uh, contradictory lifestyle, we have to do something. 
And so he talks about some of the categories. I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. So these are different categories. So sexual immorality, persistent sexual immorality, um, like the man in the story. Or someone who uh, is exchanging Jesus for materialism and greediness. So someone who's greedy at that level. Someone who's turning from Jesus to pursue false religion and false gods, an idolater. Someone who's cantankerous, unintreatable, a mocker, that's a reviler. So someone who will not listen and constantly says everyone else is wrong, I'm right, and you're foolish, and I'm wise, so a reviler. And then uh, a drunkard, someone who is dealing with substance abuse and not getting help, not looking for help, but defining their life by that substance abuse and prof- professing to be a believer. And then a swindler, someone who's basically a con man, uh, swindling. So these sort of people, these sort of uh, d- behaviors are really lifestyles. They're, they're people saying, this, this is who I am. I value this thing and this behavior more than Jesus. And these are the sorts of things that have to be addressed. So how do we do it? How do we do it? So if it's these sorts of things, what goes on? Well, after repeated attempts to help them, um, after just being a good brother or sister in their lives, after taking the next step of bringing in others, and after taking the next step of bringing in church leaders and the church, um, at that point, it's time for the church to purge the person from their midst and hand them over to Satan. That's what Paul's saying. It sounds shocking. Um, it is shocking in some ways. It's meant to be shocking, but it's here in the text. It's here in Scripture. And actually, it's consistent with how God's people are to treat uh, such gross sins all the way back to the Old Testament, the, the purge, the person from among you is lifted right from the Pentateuch. So what's supposed to happen in this is the person's no longer considered part of the church, and they're put out of the church relationally and spiritually as well. They're put out of the church relationally and spiritually, and that is a very serious situation. You see that the church is the flock, we're sheep under the chief shepherd, Jesus. And in Jesus, there's, there's, there's new life. There's grace for forgiveness. There's help. There's protection. And he is for us and for our good in, in the context of the, the flock. And to be put outside of the flock is to be exposed to the wolves. And that in this context, the wolf is Satan. The wolves would be Satan and his demons. And so Paul's saying that this guy, because he's not responding, needs to be put out and handed over to Satan. He needs to be put outside the flock. He needs to recognize that, that this sort of behavior, this sort of lifestyle decision for him has no place among the people of God because it's a contradiction to being a believer who's running to Jesus for forgiveness and strength to resist sin. This person is pursuing sin. So put them out and, and, and hand them over to Satan. That's handing them over outside the church. They're no longer under the protection of Jesus in the context of the local church. Paul said, talks about this elsewhere, 1 Timothy 1. He's speaking of people who have, who have strayed. And he says, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. And Paul in this context is saying, Deliver the person over to Satan that their spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So the the objective here is not punishment of this brother, but salvation. But in order to get there, they need to put him out so that he's in the place where he's subject to the, the affliction of Satan. 
Paul speaks about this idea of Satan afflicting. We see it in Scripture, but, but he experienced affliction in his own life in a measured form. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he says, So to keep me from being too elated by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. So Paul had experienced affliction from Satan, that it was measured and it was to, God was using it in his life. We don't know exactly what it was. But the idea is that God allows Satan to afflict to accomplish good ends. And that's the context here. Paul's saying, you need to put him out so that he'll be afflicted and in that place, maybe wake up and realize, what have I done? I've traded Jesus for this passing, fleeting sin, and it's not worth it. It's bringing consequences in my life, and I, and I don't want that. It's, it's really, it's tough love, isn't it? This is basically tough love at work in the context of a local church. And many of us, I think, probably have been involved in tough love situations. It's hard. It's hard to do that. It's hard to turn someone out. It's hard to turn out an addicted son or daughter onto the street. It is gut-wrenching. But we know when someone has refused to get help and refused everything that we've provided to help them, and yet they, they decide they're going to define their lives this way and, and trade all of their life and all the good things they have for this addiction, the very best thing we can do is to put them out on the street to suffer the consequences. And that's what Paul's saying here, is that you need to put him out. He's an addict, uh, addict to sin, and so put him out of the church to preserve the integrity of the church and also for the salvation of the sinner. It's not really punishment, it's discipline for the goal of this person being saved on the day of the Lord. Because if, if he doesn't repent, he has no reason to think that he belongs to Jesus. And so you are, by this action, actually being used by God to save this person's soul. This isn't theoretical. And as I prepared this, I, I had a number of situations come to mind. I remember sitting in my office across from a brother who I had known for years, who was choosing sin in his life, serious sin like the, we see in this chapter. And he wouldn't stop. And we had met and talked, and he wouldn't stop. And with tears, I said, my friend, I, I love you. And I want to see you there on the final day with Jesus. I can't bear the thought of you not being there. So please, please repent. Please get help. And it grieves me because from what I can tell, to this day, this brother hasn't repented, and I don't know where he's going to go. But I also have memories of good endings. Some years ago, I remember sitting with church leaders with a young woman who was a dear friend in the church, but she had chosen for various reasons to pursue the, the, the twisted dream of, of life with a married man, committing adultery with, on his part. Uh, with a married man living. She moved in with a married man and, and turned away from Jesus. And we sat there with her and pleaded with her and said, I remember saying this with, with the group, you're never going to be happy. You're never going to be happy. If you're a believer, you're never going to be happy because this is a twisted thing. And it may seem nice for a while, but you'll never be happy. So in a lot of ways, you just need to think about that. And, and she went home and did 
and she realized that we were right. God's word is right. And she left the man, was restored to the church and Jesus, and she's been walking with Jesus now for 30 years, is married and has a family, and I'm so grateful. This is what's supposed to happen in light of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And from what we can see, it, this man perhaps was restored because there's hints of this in 2 Corinthians, a, le- a later letter from Paul. And he's speaking about a situation, either this particular one or one like it. And he says in chapter 2, For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. It's a wonderful answer to this situation where Paul's saying, okay, guys, the guy's repentant, and he's sorry. Bring him back. Love him. Restore him. Let him feel your love. Let him feel fully restored. And this reminds me of what we see in Daniel chapter 12. It speaks about believers like you and me living in the grace of Christ and walking out these these things. It says, all those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Guys, when you practice these things as hard as it might be, you are shining for Jesus, and you're going to shine for eternity as well as a result of walking in these truths. So as we conclude, let me just suggest a few things to, to respond to God's word, a few ways to respond to God's word. One is just to keep your eyes on the Passover lamb. Keep Jesus at the center. Look to him and remember who he is and what he's done. That's where the power to say no to sin in your own life and as a church, that's where the power comes, keeping Jesus at the center. That's where the strength comes in the journey when, when your heart is broken over a brother or sister who's turned away. Look to Jesus, the good shepherd who's with you. He's with you. He's for you. He'll, he'll give you strength. He'll help you. He'll never let go. Realize that for all of us, the reality of our life now is, is living in this new life we have in Christ, the power of the Spirit in us, Christ at the center, and that we live a life of daily turning from our sin and we need each other. We need each other for that. And so confess your sins one to another. Pray for each other that you may be healed. That's normal Christianity. It's healthy. It's good. We need help. And God helps us and meets us at that first step of just saying, help me, I'm struggling. And commit to do what God calls us to do, to to even practice church discipline, trusting him and his word, because the fruit is good. It's glorious. God wants to put the church on display. He wants to restore wandering brothers and sisters. He wants to glorify his name through you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your instruction here. And thank you, Lord, for how you work good through these things. I pray you'd grant King's Cross a faith in your word and a resolute determination to trust you and keep you, Jesus, the Passover lamb, at the center and to be a people that reflect in integrity this new life and all that they do. May they be people who regularly confess sin and experience victory and, and display your holiness and glory and who they are as a people. 
I pray for each one here as well. Would you guide and direct and comfort them? And Lord Jesus, draw their attention to you, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.